Okay. So, um, I wonder um, if I ask each of you what do you think the, the main things are uh, that you've learned from Galatians over the years, how you would respond to that question. Um, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for real here, what are the main things you've learned from Galatians over the years? What are the things, I guess, that have stuck in your mind as you studied it, or maybe that have perplexed you? Or freedom. Okay, thank you. That's a really big thing that we're going to be there this evening. Any other words or seriousness of the issues involved? Serious, serious issues, thank you. And that's absolutely, that's kind of our topic this evening. Any other? The fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit, thank you. Brilliant. So, Galatians 5, classic text. And the sinful nature. <laughs> okay, yeah, absolutely. So, and those two things kind of juxtaposed against one another. Right, okay, so legalism, thank you. And that's, yeah, I think for most Christians we would say that that would be the main thing. The main thing that we've heard from Galatians is that legalism is a danger. Uh, we'll be talking about that in some detail. And, and also questions, problems, complexities. Don't feel uh, uh, ashamed to, to air those. I'll, I'll um, uh, maybe kind of dive in here, but I, I think perplexities is actually one of the major things that we feel when we come to this particular letter of the Bible. It shouldn't surprise us that much, because um, we're reading letters here, aren't we, in our New Testament, and we only have one side of the conversation. We don't necessarily know too much about what the underlying issues were, unless we've got other material that can help us get to the bottom of them. Um, and so it's always going to be the case that we're left kind of wondering, wow, I wonder how were the people that Paul is speaking to responded to this, or what was the underlying cause? We're going to try and get to some of that. Um, as I think Matthew said, um, I think one of the reasons for the perplexity that we feel about Galatians is this question of legalism. The book seems to be warning us about this, and the application I remember always when I was a when I was a student, I came away from reading Galatians thinking, Neil, don't make an idol out of your quiet time. You know, uh, don't think God is impressed with you when you go to church. And those are, those are all good and important kind of life lessons, aren't they? Um, but this is also the place in the New Testament where Paul seems to get the most hot under the collar, as we heard seriousness from Andrew. How do those two things sit together? It opens with these incredibly famous and powerful verses where Paul threatens people who are preaching a different gospel in Galatians with eternal condemnation. Um, in chapter 5, we get the equally amazing little section where Paul, which is the people who were pushing circumcision in Galatia, would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> that seems pretty drastic, because I'm not sure that quite fits within our Sunday afternoon reading parameters, and yet it's there in the Bible. Um, and it's all the harder for us to digest it, isn't it? Because that response doesn't seem proportionate to the underlying issue. Now, this was one or two Corinthians. Maybe that would be different. You see, in those letters, Paul is faced with a church that's openly split. There were different groups following different leaders. Their worship services seem to be out of control. Rich Christians are trampling over poor Christians at the communion table. Um, we have uh, a church that's obsessed with impressive speakers, that's seemingly obsessed with impressive spiritual experiences. They're even turning a blind eye to someone who's sleeping with his stepmother, apparently. That's pretty bad. So if there was ever a situation where you could imagine Paul throwing the anathema around, you know, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians would be it. And yet somehow, he goes comparatively easy on this Corinthian church, 
and really wields the big stick with the Galatians. And so why is that? What's so serious about the Galatian situation that means that Paul is pulling out the, uh, the full-scale ammunition? Well, tonight I hope we're going to uh, get to the bottom of that question. It's related, of course, to what we did last week in chapter 4. But before we review that material just a bit, we're going to read our passage for this evening, uh, which is going to take us down right into the very heart of the letter. Um, I think it actually contains some of the most quoted verses in the entire Bible. Uh, This is Galatians 2, and we're going to start at verse 11. And you can find this if you have one of the red Bibles on page uh, 1169. And do keep your Bibles open as we go along. Um, We're going to be in and out of this text all through this evening. I'd love for you to uh, to be working with me on it as you go along. And we'll have time for Q&A at the end, so questions that the text raises as well as questions that... uh, about what I say, do feel free to answer, to, to, to ask. Um, a good friend of mine is fond of saying at this point, um, yeah, Bible is the sermon of what oxygen tanks are to scuba diving, um, so do make sure that you keep your Bible handy. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so Galatians 2, and we're going to start at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not simple Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. But through the law, I have died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live in the body. Sorry, the life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So that's our very famous text this evening. Now our passage began with the words when Cephas came to Antioch. Now Cephas, you probably know, is kind of a nickname that Jesus gave to the apostle Peter, means rock. So perhaps, given the way that this is going, we should translate this when Rocky came to Antioch. It feels like we need like, the eye of a tiger playing in the background to get ready to play the face off. Um, Antioch, uh, the place uh, we uh, were looking at last week, this is uh, the place from which Paul and Barnabas were sent to Galatia, probably in about AD 48. Um, and you'll remember they spent maybe about a year there travelling in that region, uh, planting churches. Um, and we'll just get that again on the map so we can get our heads around this. So this is our kind of um, quick look at the world. And we'll zoom in now on this area here that we call Asia Monica. So there. 
Um, and if we get a bit closer, Galatia, at this period, the, the, the Roman province of Galatia looked something like that. Okay? Um, and Antioch, the place where our action this evening is taking place, is over here. So this is in Syria, um, it's north of Palestine, and you'll remember last week um, the, uh, the action which kind of underlies all of this is that Paul and Barnabas travelled from here to Cyprus, then up to the southern coast of Galatia, and from there they went on this kind of church planting journey through four towns on an itinerary that looks something like that. So that's basically the kind of geographical setup. But now what we're hearing about is events back in the place that they came from, Antioch. Okay. Um, when exactly did Cephas come to Antioch? Sadly, the short answer to that question is that we don't know exactly. Um, but the most likely option is that he travelled up uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch, probably while Paul and Barnabas were still away. Um, perhaps he went there to encourage the church keep an eye on things when some of their senior guys were on the road. You know, that makes sense, doesn't it? And we see Peter doing similar things elsewhere in the text of Acts. But whatever the exact time was, at first, everything seems to have gone pretty well. Peter recognised that Antioch in Syria was a very different place culturally from Jerusalem in Palestine, and he adapted his behaviour to accommodate that difference, because Antioch in Syria is Gentile territory. It's not quite as extremely Gentile as the place in the middle of our map here, but it's still very, very different from Jewish Jerusalem. And so in verse 12, if you look down there, you'll find that our passage tells us that when Peter first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers there. Now that may not seem like that big of a deal to us. Uh, I take it that we don't ask our dinner guests before they uh, get the chance to accept or refuse whether they're Gentiles. Uh, probably good that we don't, most of us are Gentiles anyway. Um, but for Jews at this point, eating with non-Jews was really pretty high up there on the list of things that you must absolutely never do. And uh, the idea that after the coming of Jesus, everyone could just kind of relax a little bit more about this stuff was still very, very new. So I think we say full marks to Peter here to start with. He modified his behaviour to avoid causing unnecessary offence to the Gentiles in this very Gentile church. And last week we learned that that was very important. Not just because this was a way to extend love and acceptance across this kind of massive historical and cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles, you know, never twain shall meet. Um, this was important not just because it avoided creating the impression that the Jews thought they were somehow better than everybody else. It was important because when Jewish Christians refused to eat with Gentiles, they start, and they started kind of insisting that all of their old laws still applied and everybody had to comply. It was damaging to the Gentiles themselves. It's really easy to miss this, but this is important. When Jews said to Gentiles, hey, guess what, you guys? You know, you're very welcome to eat with us if you get circumcised and if you keep our festivals and if you do pretty much all the stuff that we do. Gentiles had a ready-made category in their minds for rules like that. You see, that's what religion used to look like for them before they ever heard about Jesus. Rituals, festivals, lots of stuff to do. And the motives that had driven them to do that stuff in the past were reawakened really, really easily when they started doing similar things in the present. Does that make sense? That was also in the last week. 
And we can see this actually in our passage tonight. If you look down at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, Paul says to Peter, We who are Jews by birth and not simple Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. But his point is, we Jews know that, but those simple Gentiles, they don't. Simple Gentiles, in fact, jump straight to the conclusion that a person is absolutely justified by the works of the law, because they've striven to be justified by keeping every other religious law they've ever known. From their mother's knees, simple Gentiles have performed religious duties in an attempt to make their gods give them what they want. And Jewish laws appeal to them for exactly the same reason. For Gentiles, Jewish laws seem like a list of things to do to keep their new gods sweet. Oh, finally, someone's actually telling us what we have to do in order to keep this Judeo-Christian God uh, on our side. So as we saw last week, Jewish laws for them were kind of like a new set of clothes that they could just drape over the mannequin of their religious past, and it took up the shape of that past in the process. So far, so good. What we might not realise, though, is that we've just made a really significant jump in our understanding of what's going on in Galatians. You see, last week, when we worked all this stuff out in chapter 4, this felt like we were dealing potentially with a parochial little issue just in Galatians, didn't it? You know, we heard that Paul had got to know these particular people really well. He'd spent 14 years in this part of the world, actually, after his conversion, learning the culture, understanding the languages, getting to know the religious background. And he was concerned that when Jewish Christian teachers arrived here, they were driving his readers back into the arms of all this very Galatian stuff. Bad? Yes. But relevant to us, not so obviously. But now, if we look at the place in Galatians where all of this is being applied, we can see that it's actually incredibly relevant. Because Paul isn't just dealing with a parochial little issue in Galatians now, this is in chapter 2. Paul has his hands on one of the major arteries of the Christian faith. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person... Any person, in any time, is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the very heart of the gospel. And Paul reiterates in the next verse, if we were in any doubt. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The issue that Paul is dealing with here then is the fundamental difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. Between grasping the significance of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and not grasping that significance. The stakes could not be higher. And that's why the anathema is applying in this matter. Paul thinks the very core of the Christian gospel is under threat. And that's the reason why it's so serious. When Christians allow the logic of their past, the logic of their surrounding culture, to dictate the shape of their faith in the present, they cease to be Christians, says Paul. Whatever they say about having prayed the prayer or having trusted in Christ by faith alone, if it doesn't manifest itself in a life that, sh- that shapes by that new logic, it's all for nothing. If the Galatians persist in resuscitating the religious assumptions of their culture, if they take hold of Jewish rituals as a new way to put their new God under obligation, as a way to make him give them what they want, 
Their faith is dead. And the same is true of us. So that, I think, is what we have here at the heart of this letter. That's the reason why Paul's vocabulary goes straight to DEFCON 1 in the first chapter. And that's the reality that then goes on and structures the rest of his argument as we go all the way through to the finish. As he spells out the implications of this really dramatic uh, set of claims with three striking contrasts, each one of which uh, we will probably be quite familiar with. We saw the first one in our reading this evening, the contrast between works and faith. We saw the second one uh, last week in chapter 4, the contrast between slavery and freedom. And the final one comes into clear focus uh, in chapter 5, the contrast between flesh and spirit. Each one of these contrasts highlights the difference between our non-Christian past and our Christian future. And each one reflects the danger that the past can end up repeating itself in the future if we don't take care. So we're going to work through these. That's going to be the kind of core of our material this evening. And we're going to be thinking about the implications for ourselves that we keep in Oxford uh, as we do. So does that sound kind of uh, like a, a decent way forward? Um, and I'll just put those up on the screen here so that we can see what's going on. Okay, so our three contrasts, works and faith, slavery, freedom, and flesh, and spirit. So look down with me again at chapter 2, verse 16. The person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, says Paul. Works bad, faith good, right? But what does this actually mean in Paul's mind, and how should we apply it to ourselves? It has this kind of... Um, broad application to people in general and not just to the Galatian situation. The easy reading, of course, is just to say works means Judaism and faith means Christianity. And so we should all perhaps be very careful if a Jewish friend invites us over to celebrate the Passover. Um, assuming Judaism equates to legalism, which many people do assume, but is actually a pretty misleading caricature of what's happening in the, the history itself. Uh, we should all be very careful when our legalistic instincts kick in. This is where we get this thing about making idols out of our quiet times. But as we saw in our sermon last week, that reading really doesn't wash. Because the problem in Galatia wasn't really Judaism. The problem in Galatia was what Judaism became when it was appropriated by people who had spent their whole lives up to that point worshipping the Gentile gods. It was a Gentile remix of Judaism gets the, the hair dryer treatment from Paul in Galatians. And a Gentile remix of any other attractive system of obligations, I take it, would have got exactly the same response. The Galatians were certainly very excited about Jewish Christianity, but the problem was their motives, not the thing itself. The problem was that they could pursue this with the same underlying hopes and expectations that had driven them as non-Christians in the past. Functional, non-Christian like living, even under the guidance of being believers. And that, I think, applies with power relevance to our lives right here. I say the pastor of my church has recently read the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and he's preaching a seven-sermon series now, I hope Dan has never done this, um, <laughs> entitled Seven <laughs> Habits of Highly Effective Christians. <laughs> <laughs> Now, my pastor is good godly mate, this is certainly true, um, and the sermons are exegetically accurate, they're doctrinally right on the spot, and yet there's trouble here, isn't there? Because although seven habits of highly effective Christians sounds like great contextualization on this part, it's actually reawakening the logic of my non-Christian past. 
You see, seven habits of highly effective anything puts me right back in the place from which God saved me. A place where what I do is the thing that makes all the difference, right? The thing that delivers me from self-loathing, the thing that promises me that I'll be highly effective, and I do so want to be highly effective, especially if everybody else notices. Even as I go out into the week and put his exegetically accurate and doctrinally astute recommendations into practice, I'm in deep, deep danger. One of the major arteries of my Christian faith is exposed. Because whatever I say about being saved by grace, in that moment, I'm grabbing hold of Christianity as a way to take control of my own future and make myself into the thing I want to be. There's no faith in that. There's no real trust in Christ. There's no surrender to his vision of what I should be. Whether I mean to or not, muscle memory alone is navigating me from seven habits of highly effective Christians to being a Christian who is dependent on works and not on faith. What about the next contrast? Slavery and freedom. This was a major theme of our passage last week in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. You might want to flip over to that just across the page. Chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And then continuing actually on to chapter 5, verse 1. We get these very famous words. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Just in parenthesis there. Isn't that again interesting? If that again wasn't there, stand firm then. Don't let yourself be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Totally, that could all be about accepting Judaism. But Susie says again, it means they're going back to something that they've done before. Here too, we're prone to simplistic readings, I think. God is pro-liberty, true. God is anti-slavery, true. These texts are here then for Christians who work maybe with recovering addicts or who volunteer with Christians against poverty. Probably not so much for me. And yet we fail to realise that Paul has his hands on a major artery of the Christian faith again here. Much though God longs to bring healing and help to people with addictions and debt, absolutely, Paul's talk of slavery here has a much wider application than that. Slavery is the image that Paul uses in Galatians to describe our entire experience outside Christ. The thoughts that we thought, the goals we strove for, and it's that slavery that we slide back into so easily. So say I'm reading a book at the moment about a famous missionary, and I'm struck by the story of her call into Christian ministry. This lady went to a meeting one evening and felt a sudden overwhelming sense of concern for the country where she ultimately went to serve. She knew with certainty in that moment that God was speaking to her and setting her apart for this work. And from that point forward, whatever the obstacles, she never wavered in her conviction that God had laid his hand on her and sent her to that place. This is a wonderful story, isn't it? All the more wonderful for that it's actually true in many people's experience. It's got great potential to inspire and stretch me. But just like my pastor's seven habits sermon series, it's also got great potential to be misappropriated by someone brought up in this culture. As I read about this amazing missionary, I find myself asking, why has this ever happened to me? Why haven't I ever known the presence and the calling of God with that sort of emotional intensity 
And then that's where the problems really start. Because since I was a small of small, the world I live in has been shouting at me, indoctrinating me, with the belief that the products and the relationships and the hopes that come with emotional intensity are the only ones that are real. And that if they lack that emotional intensity, or it begins to fade, they're no longer real. And so I start to doubt that I'm really a Christian at all. And the freedom of knowing that Christ knows what's best for me, the freedom of trusting him to complement the truth of the gospel in my life with the emotional experiences that he chooses, the freedom to pay attention to what he is doing in my life, rather than just focus on the stuff that I wish he was, even though the things that he is doing might be actually quite quiet and need some discernment on my part, all of that is just snuffed out and choked out in an instant in this overwhelming, suffocating slavery of believing that what I feel is a measure of what is true. Whatever I say about being saved by grace in that moment, Christianity is slipping through my fingers. Because I'm judging it by the standards that enslaved me in the past. There's no faith in that, is there? There's no trust in Christ. There's no surrender to his vision of what I should be. Whether I mean to or not, muscle memory alone is navigating me from the experience of this godly woman in the book I'm reading to despair. What about Paul's final contrast? That of flesh and spirit. This one will be familiar to all of us who know the closing chapters of Galatians, where Paul lays out the ethical implications of faith in Christ. We heard earlier on about the fruit of the Spirit, and now we're going to read them. In chapter 5, verse 16, uh, just over another page, Paul writes this, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. And then down to verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Despite our familiarity with this, the applications here are similarly uncomfortable. Paul is responding to an audience that's desperate for a tick list of do's and don'ts. That's what their religious teachers used to give them, actually, as you get to know this Greco-Roman culture from which they came. But now Paul is coming at them with a plea to think differently. Paul isn't going to tell them what to do. Because he knows that if he tells them what to do, they'll use it as a tool to try and make God bless them in response. Striking, isn't it? He, he doesn't tell them how to be good. He just tells them what life will look like when goodness is already at work in them. He doesn't tell them how to get the Spirit. He tells them what life will look like when the Spirit has already come. Imagine for a moment that uh, I was part of a church that had recently arranged 24 hours of uninterrupted prayer to seek God's will for its ministry in the local area, which so I can't imagine how we can actually bring this one to life. Um, but, um, well, we all know that we can reach the person in experience. This is a good and godly thing to do. This is an appropriate response to God's call to explicit dependence on Him in every step we take in life, uh, whether or not it's a huge step like the Irving Project or not. But it's also true, isn't it, that even this holds risks for people shaped by the culture that surrounds us here in Oxford. 24 hours of prayer also sounds like a great candidate for a spiritual tick list, doesn't it? 
sitting around watching the Six Nations with the kids, not so much. But uh, sitting in the cold church <laughs> building in the dark, praying at 3 a.m., oh, yes, that sounds just like the kind of thing you should be on my And today we're looking at a nice big tick against that item. And so now perhaps we're expecting God to answer, not because we believe He called us to this, and we're actually observing the effect of something that He did among us, but because somewhere deep down at the back of our minds, we believe that ticks deserve blessings. We think ticks oblige God to give us the things that we want. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Whenever we say about being saved by grace in that moment, our faith has more of the flesh about it than the spirit. The distinctive mark of the spirit is that he always points to Christ. But if I think answer prayer is all about me, in the end, how much of the spirit can I really claim? Whether I mean to or not, the muscle memory alone is navigating me away from this good and godly call to pray for our church and for the spread of the gospel in our area to this toxic world that I came from where good things don't come to those who wait, but to those who manipulate. So what are we learning here? With each of these contrasts, works and faith, slavery and freedom, flesh and spirit, it's not enough just to say that we named Christ the Saviour at some point in the increasingly remote past and that we trusted in his grace alone then to rescue us from our godless, sacrificed lives. If we're really his sons and daughters, we will be living by faith today. We will be living in freedom today. We will be living by spirit today. That's why Paul's so concerned, isn't it? Because he's worried that whatever they said in the past, it's not actually manifested in their present reality. Our past is still calling to us through our memories of it, through our familiar patterns of thought, that muscle memory that we've spoken about a lot. Our past is still present, actually, when we engage with our non-Christian friends, when we engage with non-Christian family or colleagues, when we engage with the messages that are coming at us from the world. But for us as Christians, knowing this and understanding how easy and tempting it is to read even the good things that we receive from God through these lenses, we are called to a radical response. Paul doesn't just want us to consider the past past. Paul wants us to consider the past dead. Back to our passage, chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, and I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness can be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thinking what that looks like for each one of us individually is something I'm actually going to leave for each of us to kind of take away as homework for our own quiet time this week. I hope that we'll all find that helpful and maybe it's something that we could uh, discuss a little bit in questions afterwards. I, I take it Paul wants each of us to think carefully about what putting our past modes of thought to death might actually look like in terms of being aware of what they were and in terms of a commitment to the kind of covenant with him to handle them in that way. The three contrasts that we've worked our way through here I think help us recognise what those modes of thought were. They help us uh, see how out of place they are as well when they start coming back to life. When pre-Christian, un-Christian habits of thought re-emerge in our minds, it's weird and creepy, it's not natural, it's like something out of a zombie movie where kind of dead bodies are coming back out of the grave all stiff and malevolent. That's the way that we're supposed to think about it. 
For the remainder of our time tonight, though, I want us to concentrate not so much on what this might mean individually, I think we can all get there individually, but on what this might mean for us as a community. Those of you who were here last week will remember we had an extra question thank you. Um, at the end about what, what it is that we um, are, are to do in terms of our own responsibilities for understanding other people's backgrounds and knowing how to uh, try to avoid unearthing any zombies that they're trying to keep safely after the crowd. To what extent we need to think about our own words and actions as potential triggers that could send other Christians back into the arms of this toxic stuff from the past. Well, the more I think about Galatians, the more I realise it's, it's a case study in the importance of the principle which Paul is quite explicit about in other parts of the New Testament. This principle crops up for the first time in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you might want to turn to that. We're just going to look at it a little bit. So it is on page 1150. So this is a passage where Paul is kind of confirming for his friends in Corinth that they are indeed free from Jewish rules about eating clean um, and foods. He's echoing Jesus' teaching here about the things that come out of a person making them unclean, not the things that come into a person. You remember that from the Gospels. Paul tells the Corinthians that they can eat whatever they want. But then we get an interesting little caveat which addresses this issue about understanding and respecting things that come out of the past. You see, in Corinth, the culture of this city, the culture where most of the people that Paul's writing to have grown up, was built on idol worship. Eating food that had been sacrificed by idols was a central part of their religious life. And in Paul's mind, that reality modified the way that Christians should think about their freedom. And so he writes this in chapter 8, verse 7. Some people are still so accustomed to idols, he writes. You spot that he's going back now thinking about what their past lives were like. They're still so accustomed to idols that they used to worship in the past that when they eat such, uh, sacrificial food now, they still think of it as having been sacrificed to a god and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Do you see his point? <coughs> Muscle memory acquired from a lifetime of breathing the Corinthian air made eating whatever you want actually a potentially dangerous strategy for the Christians who live there. It might not trigger zombie-like reawakenings of the past for everyone, but for some, it really did. And these some need to be considered. And so Paul goes on, be careful that in the exercise of your rights, you don't uh, end up uh, putting a stumbling block in the front, in the face of the roof. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died will be destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. <coughs> Therefore, if I eat what causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So this, I think, is the primary reason why Paul is so frustrated with these Jewish Christian teachers in Galatia. I doubt that there was actually all that much clear theological water between them. I imagine that if we run into these guys side by side in some Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, it would have been pretty hard to tell the difference. But the problems came when they came to Galatia. You see, they didn't respect the different background that the Galatians came from. They didn't seem to have a clue what it felt like to breathe the Galatian air or any understanding of what passed were normal in the Galatians' past. 
They breathed in, keen to help, doubtless with some very good things to say, perhaps like uninvited guests at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, who were so struck by the depth of the sadness and brokenness that comes out in the session that they invite the participants out to the pub afterwards to continue the discussion. They didn't have any sensitivity to the weakness of their weaker brothers and sisters. They don't seem to have even thought about it, and that thoughtlessness led to that. You see why Paul's so cross, so needless, so unhelpful. This, I think, is the big challenge that Galatians lays before us as a church and any church. Yes, it's true that each one of us is accountable before God for putting our own non-Christian lives and non-Christian motives to death. But there's no excuse for knowing each other so poorly that we actively hinder one another in our efforts to do that. We're a very diverse church, and there are people in our congregation from a huge variety of different backgrounds. That makes it difficult. But as far as it depends on us, we still need to be thinking carefully about how to avoid placing unnecessary stumbling blocks in other people's paths. Last week we talked about the importance of making time to hear one another's stories. I think that's a really critical application of Galatians for us. In home groups, in our connect group, we need to be making time to listen to each other and find out where the other people that we're in fellowship with are actually coming from. If I uh, uh, know where the people around me and who I'm in a weekly, regular kind of Christian conversation with are, are at and what their past experiences has been like, I may not do a perfect job of avoiding ghastly zombie reawakening howlers, but I'm a whole lot more likely to avoid it, aren't I, than if I'm just guessing or if I'm worse completely oblivious. Paul wants us to understand that we have an important role to play in one another's lives as believers. Christian fellowship brings us close to one another, close enough to do great good, but also close enough to do great harm. The situation in Galatia shows us sadly what that harm can look like, very graphically. But armed with it as a warning, with God's Spirit motivating and enabling us, it can spur us on to live differently. It isn't easy, but it's also not a tick list item. We don't have to do this to make God like us. God likes us because he likes us. He likes us because Jesus ticks every tick we will ever need to. Putting our past to death and looking after one another as we do so is something that we can do thankfully, dependently, by faith, not as a work, in freedom, not as slaves, by the Spirit, not from the flesh. Trusting that as we yield ourselves to him, as we say yes to him, as we ask him to let his resurrection life live in us, he will use us to bless each other. Heavenly Father, this is such a stretching book of the Bible as we start to see something of the, uh, the I guess it's kind of the social experience that lies behind uh, the, the fireworks, realising the impact of Maybe well-meaning, but also uh, thoughtless uh, initiatives that Christians can take uh, that actually reawaken all kinds of demons from the past. Lord, we pray so much that you would please help us as individuals to be alert to the fact that this is the way that our human bodies and minds are constructed, that having got used to certain ways of thinking, it's really, really hard to shake them off. We pray that you'd help us to be alert 
to the places where we take good, life-giving, gospel truth and we kind of instantaneously reinterpret it to be something which is really, really horrible and toxic. Help us, Lord God, to know where we're vulnerable and to be able to resist that. We pray that those things might be put to death in us. We pray that we might be able to say with Paul that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us in those places. And that we can appeal to him to be the victor, to be the person who drives the way that we think and respond and not have our old patterns of thought do the driving. Or might that be the consistent, growing, emerging pattern of Christ's likeness in us? And then we pray that you'd help us maybe with that sensitivity to our own situation, then to extend that sensitivity to others, to be alert to the potential for blessing and encouragement, but also for the uh, possibility of unintentional damage through the things that we say or the ways that we live. And we pray that you would please help us more and more, imperfect as we are, to be a church that is really spurring each other on um, and uh, guarding one another's hearts in these ways that Paul is so keen to uh, encourage us. So help us, Lord God, as we think these things through. Help us as we uh, wrestle with questions. We pray that you might be uh, more and more honoured in us as individuals and as a church uh, as we think on these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay. So, as we did last week, um, it might be good just to open for questions. Um, and then we'll, we'll close it. Um, I'm aware that we're probably throwing out some fairly kind of hot, um, high octane explosives, um, so do feel free to engage with them. Um, yes. Um, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, but it's kind of a follow up for the question I've asked last, mm. last time. It's uh, because it, it comes from Catch 22, where I do realize. I'm so stuck in the patterns of my past that I won't be able to see them coming and taking over me again. Uh, the way you talk about practicalities of way way to deal with that in sports, you gotta trust your coach mm-hmm. who can push you beyond. Yeah. You know, the like races today, you know, Oxford Cambridge and everything. Uh, but and I have I have a lot of friends, athletes, and they it's, it's a mindset where you're always looking for someone who will tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. And that kind of takes you to a level that could be incredible because you basically don't trust yourself and your own limitations. At the same time, as you're pointing out, could be quite dangerous because the person who you're giving that trust could be uh, you know, full of his patterns mm-hmm. themselves and not necessarily seeing that. So, and in a in the church, in the spiritual sort of environment, and becomes a real question. So, when do you, if somebody gives me input, I will use my own patterns from the past and my own judgment to decide if that's applicable or not. And I'm kind of in a situation where I can't trust them, knowing that they might mislead me, and I can't trust quite myself in my judgment of them, so it becomes a terribly complicated setup. Uh, From what you're saying is, what do you see as the 
sort of the, 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 the reality of the way you're kind of figuring that out, because the extreme is to give somebody else too much power yeah. you know, over you and the Catholics and the churches. And yeah. the so thing. I think what you're articulating is um, there's, a, there's a way into this kind of way of thinking in most areas of life. Um, you know, I, I think that we experience this um, you know, as soon as we, you know, we're engaging with our biotechs and we realize how little we know, you know, we don't understand much about the ancient world, we don't necessarily understand the ancient languages, we start to doubt how much we can possibly know, and suddenly feels like, oh, there's nothing I can do with this, like, it's just too complicated, I just want to hang on. Um, I think that Christianity is not like that, and it's a mercy that it's not. Buddhism is like that, where you've got to make it, you've got to, it's got to be perfect for you to actually make progress, but that's not exactly not what Paul's describing. And it's striking that that's not the recipe that he gives us in Galatians. It doesn't come down to, here's a set of things you have to get to do perfectly, perfect self-knowledge, perfect counselling, in order to be able to get this right. He points us to Jesus. Um, you know, that's the point of that Galatians 2.20, you know, it's new, new life in Christ. I think he's wanting us to say, look, let your focus be there. Um, immerse yourself in just um, uh, thinking Jesus' thoughts after him. Read the Gospels. Engage with the way that he engages the classic kind of questions that we face. And try to just put your feet more and more in his footsteps. Um, and as we do that, I think that's something that we, it's not just a kind of like, I really know I've got to interpret it in here, right? But that's a prayerful dialogue with God, isn't it? So as we read, we see Jesus in action, we think to ourselves, okay, how can I be more like this? God help me. Like, how should I do this today in my work? How should I do this today in my family life? And my own experience with this, which is, you know, um, you know, I'm, I think all this time set me absolutely in the foot hills of any dealing with any of this. My moments kind of like it's scaling the mountainside. Um, but when I pray, I find that things become clearer. You know, I find as I'm reading, I seek to emulate him, seek to follow him. When I'm confused, I ask, Jesus, how would you have me engage with this? And I, and I find enough clarity for the day. Um, so I, I don't think Paul necessarily would want us to feel beholden to any kind of, uh, you know, elite spiritual advisor or um, uh, to you know, feel hamstrung by our own lifestyle perspective and those kind of things. God's Spirit working in us as we seek to become more like Christ and give us the stuff that we need. I think that that simple path of just emulating Him, following Him, seeking to obey Him, is the place where this stuff begins. I think it's, um, it's important not to, even though you know, what we've done is been because we've been planning for that kind of more complicated, but ultimately what we're being asked to do is not that complicated. It's that Other questions? I'm a. Uh, um relatively young Western male living in the UK with a particular background would be quite common to people like me. Could you give a couple of examples of the sorts of ways, um, the sorts of old thoughts that I might be tempted to go back to? That's helpful. Someone like me. Um, I sought to do that, um, you know, um, in the seven section when we were talking about, so things like the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm being a bit polemic here, I mean, it, it's fine to have a sermon series, you know, we take some of those things, but we just need to be alert to what we're doing, don't we, as we teach that way. 
I think we we are um, we're we're surrounded by by a self help culture which basically sees salvation as a journey towards individualism and self sufficiency. And there are certain kind of code words that we're used to, you know, seven bullet points to achieve X, you know, or I, I also hit the kind of more emotional direction here when I gave that little example from the missionary biography. So, you know, that idea that if I, I feel it incredibly powerfully, really, then it's really real. Again, it's very me-focused, isn't it? I'm trying to draw out what it feels like to have that kind of individualism, that self, self-sufficiency. Um, and I just think we need to know that that's what's going on. I mean, it's a good old thing about know thyself, isn't it? Um, if we know that that's the way we're going to think, then it's just a good screen to ask yourself. I mean, so maybe this is something that you know could become part of our kind of after sermon chat on a Sunday. You know, as we we talk together about like, what was the thing you got out of Andy's sermon this morning? Like, what was the big thing? What's the takeaway? What do you think that's going to you know, change your life this week or in home groups? But then there's a secondary question to ask, which is, why did that thing strike you as the big thing? And if it struck you as a big thing, it's actually, you know, I'm just desperate to have some new tick list on my, you know, item. If I have that tick list, I'll tick it off and everything will be fine. Suddenly then you know what it is that's doing the talking. You know, sadly, it's not great gospel content of Andy's sermon, which is really sticking with you. Um, but it's that desire to control the future. And here's my next new little trick that's going to get me there. Um, but also, I think, you know, we live in a cynical culture, don't we? And so I think we we have a kind of like a restless trying of different techniques in order to propel us forward. But then there's also the I'm never going to try anything again because nothing ever works. And I think that's also a response that we sometimes make to Christian teaching. And equally we need to be able to listen to that and say that's that's my culture. That's the past. You know, the the modus operandi of the Bible is absolutely yes we will fail, but Christians get knocked down when they get back up again. <laughs> You know, um, God enabled me. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. And so when we get into this kind of despair mode, it's like, oh, I've heard this over again, and I can never do it, so I'm just going to listen to it. Who's talking? It's not the Bible talking. We're not listening to it, it is. We're listening to ourselves. We're listening to the stuff which our culture tells us. And so I think, I mean, this is a great, it's been fun for me to kind of bring this to the kind of um, the sermon context and think those things through. Um, and it would be brilliant to you know, keep thinking those things through as a congregation. But I think it, it's that kind of stuff. We've had some great fun in the Connect Group with this actually just recently. We did a session this week thinking about Buddhism. And for me, the major kind of outcome of that was realizing we live in a Buddhist culture. Um, you know, the idea that we can basically make ourselves, you know, we can, we can drive our way to enlightenment by the things that we do and, you know, push other people aside if need be in order to reach our targets. It, to, to kind of objectify that and name that to each other as a group is really helpful because then it helps me realise in my work sometimes pro- I, I approach Christianity like that. You know, I use it as this thing that I'm just going to, you know, it's going to get me to where I want to get to. Um, but it's nothing to do with the Bible. So, yeah, I suppose that's the, the, the place where the rubber hits the road. But I, I would love to get your, you know, your, your thoughts and wisdom on how it actually works in Yes. I have a follow-up question to that. I think when you talk about the Galatians, you talk about how in their worldview there's a, a contractual relationship almost with the gods, right? There's a sort of obligation. Mm-hmm. If I do these things, the gods are obliged yeah. to do it. Do you think that that's similar for our mindset in our time? Yeah, that's not quite true. 
Um, so when you look at what's happening with people interacting with the gods in the ancient world, the best way to see this is a kind of a reciprocal relationship, not a contractual one. So most people in the ancient world were well aware that the relationship was very asymmetric. The gods were all powerful, and we were just human beings. But they thought to themselves, there are certain things that I must do in order to at least have a chance that the gods will be nice to me next time. And if I don't make my necessary offerings, then there's no chance of that. So yeah, so it's basically, it's just like always putting yourself in a position in a very kind of subservient way, hoping that if I do this, at least all the obstacles to me being blessed have been removed and that maybe the gods will be gone. Now there is, you, I mean, we had it last week, you know, then there is, and there is, I think, in every culture, then something slightly more um, sinister than that, which is the thought that you can actually make the future do what you want. And this is this thing when the lady on the bars is trying to bind the gods to actually give her what she thinks uh, she requires. But both of those, I think, are alive and well in our world. So I think that we feel um, that by doing the right stuff with our health or with our money, or with our relationships or with our academic progress or whatever, that we've basically kind of paid our dues and we've got that there's no obstacle left for up to us being receiving back the stuff that we think we deserve. So we, we're expecting that disciple to turn. It's very, it's a, you know, it's a very kind of Eastern spiritual vision. Um, and then sometimes there's genuinely the full on, you know, I think I've actually, I've, I deserve for the future to give me this stuff because I made it do it, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, it's not, it's not always kind of, like this fully contraction thing. So I think we see both of those things going on. I, think, I, I don't think people are so naive that they necessarily always believe that they've, they've forced the future to, that they have an obligation, the future has an obligation to last them. But I think people think they're in some kind of constructive dance with it and by the side they do they can affect it. Um, ultimately, I think what Paul's trying to say to us in Galatians is that we need to just be content to be creatures. And say, God is God. God is good. He's a shepherd. And actually, I, I don't rate my ability to say what I think I need. I, I trust him to bring me what I need. And when he leads me into, you know, by streams of water, wonderful. But if he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm still going to say, he knows what he's doing. He's making me more like Christ by this means. Better, actually, than any other way. I don't know how. But I'm content to name him as the God who knows that in my life. Now that's, that's Christianity, that's faith. That's not works. That's faith, isn't it? That's being willing to say, I, I let him be who, who he actually says he is. And that's the, you know, the big takeoff. That's what Paul's looking for. And it's the lack of that which makes him so um, serious. Okay, let's... Um, Okay. <laughs> I wish Lee has a question now, so I can't. <laughs> how does uh, um, it change, and how much does it stay the same approaching all this for somebody who, I think this is also very prevalent in our culture, and therefore in us sometimes, approaching the situation rather than being kind of ambitious, what can I do to control what's going to happen to me, and so the other extreme. Um, and this kind of immediately seems to sit very, very well with them and seems to justify being indifferent to their own sin. If you sort of start, so you might naturally start from the point of view of uh, I, I myself, great, I can trust Jesus, 
Uh, to live in freedom. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so you're, time, you're you asking the question. So you're thinking, you're thinking at least the way Paul wants you to think, because that's the question that he then goes on and answers in Romans. So if grace is really as free as Paul says, then why can't you just sin in grace like that? You know, and that's right there. How's that changed how you approach this other passage with somebody like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, 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 the juice of it is there in Galatians 2.20 where it talks about dying with Christ. Our, our side of the conversation here, we're attempting to have a conversation about life after death, aren't we? We're trying to have a conversation about what happens after your non-Christian life has died and the life that is in you is actually the life of Jesus. Now, the conversation that your friend wants to have here is a conversation about whether they should die or not. You know, the, the question about whether I should still sin, sin the grace may abound, is not understanding that to actually be someone who is living a life which isn't surrendered to God is, is hell. It's, it's um, an unsustainable, self-destructive nightmare. And it feels like freedom. Our culture wants to tell us that it's freedom, but it's death. Now, if we are believers, we know that's true. We may not feel that it's true all the time, but we're willing to say to God, that is actually the reality. And to be saved from that is wonderful, wonderful good news. And so the whole idea that you might want to go back to that for some reason, is just for the person who's died, and who's trying to live resurrection life, is utter nonsense. Um, Because it's like asking the person... It would be like asking Terry Wentz after he spent six years with Gapitic around his head in some dungeon in the, you know, wherever it was he was held in, um, in the Middle East. So if you want to go back to that, absolutely no, because I see it for what it was. Um, so I think his, you know, Paul's argument is, if you still think that you want to live that way, you've not understood the first, you haven't even died yet. You know, the conversation that we're having now is, is what it looks like to live a resurrection life. That's the question. Okay, that's taking way too long. Let's, let's see.